Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I'm Ben Duncan, and on this podcast, I will be interviewing prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana. In today's episode, I am joined by Carter Weigel. Carter is the CEO of Thunder a Salesforce consulting practice based out of the US. Carter has a fairly unique Salesforce story, having joined Salesforce themselves back in 2001 when they had circa 100 employees. Through the episode, Carter shares more about what it was like to join Salesforce back then, how he saw the business and platform grow over the years, and why he moved out of Salesforce to start his own consulting business, which was later acquired by Cloud Sherpas. Carter shares some really interesting insight around acquisitions, having been involved in a couple now, um, both his business being acquired by Cloud Sherpas and then Sherpas being acquired by Accenture. And then he shares some insight around some of the challenges and comparisons between the market back then when he first formed his first consulting business to now with uh, the challenges that are being faced in the market with Thunder a consulting business that he recently started and a business that is already seeing some huge growth and is definitely one to keep an eye on. It was amazing having Carter on the show. It was really, really interesting to hear his insight and stories from over the years with Salesforce. And I really hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Carter, thank you so much for joining me from sunny. Is it sunny in Hawaii at the moment? I can't tell from the window. It's actually a little bit overcast here on the island of Oahu, but uh, the sun will be back any minute now. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's here. We're coming into summer. Is there such thing as a winter in Hawaii? Oh, there absolutely is. Uh, one of the best reasons to be on this island, if you uh, like the surf, we have surfers that come all over the world here to Oahu because on the North Shore, you have some very famous breaks like Pipeline and Waimea and Sunset Beach. And so a lot of your neighbors there in Australia come over here and uh, can beat so it's a it's a great place during the winter. Yeah, nice, nice. Well, I'll uh, I'll have to check it out at some point. It's definitely somewhere I want to be. But today we're not talking about Hawaii. We're talking about yourself and your journey, and uh, and you've got quite an interesting one. So we've got a lot to discuss. You have been in the Salesforce ecosystem for longer than than most. You're one of the uh, I guess the the first trailblazers uh, in the ecosystem way back when. So what did first attract you to to Salesforce at the point you joined when you were, were I, I guess in terms of years we were not long into the Salesforce journey itself. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, easy attraction. I was just right out of college. There was, at the time, Salesforce had 100 employees. And so I was just excited to, after I graduated from college, to move to San Francisco and have a job and live with my friends. So the honest answer is, who would have known that Salesforce is the amazing company it is today? It was, I think a lot of it was luck at that time. So a good friend of mine who was at Salesforce said that I should come in and interview. And again, I had no idea what Salesforce did and there wasn't any other bigger thing that I can share than it was just luck to join at the time when I did. And I guess a bit of a risk at that point as well, because they were a startup. Like, Were you being advised and guided by other people to go with bigger tech companies or was joining a startup as cool as it is these days? Yeah, there was definitely a number of people in the family that said I should go work for a bigger company like a Cisco or an Oracle or Gala Wines was fairly well known historically for great programs for up and coming people into the corporate world. And so, again, for me, I was just excited to get a job and 
I went in and when I interviewed with Salesforce, I really enjoyed meeting the people that I met there, including my first boss, Rob Acker, and felt like a good and fun team and culture. And again, I was just excited to have an opportunity to get in the workforce. But there was plenty of people who were saying I shouldn't go join a startup and all the scary things that were happening with .com. Unfortunately, at the time, Salesforce was put in that same bucket. But I realized, you know, after being there for quite some time that I was pretty sure we're a little bit better than that. You ever um, go back to the people that, that told you not to do it and uh, give them a little nudge and say, it kind of worked out? Well, one of them was my mom, who's actually one of my top advisors, always has been in my life. And so now, and, and early on, my mom was such a fan. So we, we joke about it from time to time, for sure. So you, you went in as a salesperson, right? So you were selling, am I right in saying you were selling licenses from, from kind of get-go? Yeah. So when I started Salesforce, there was very few teams or divisions within the sales organization. There was really just an inside sales team, which would be in the market, potentially known as an SDR team. So that was really our team when I joined Salesforce, where we were answering the 1-800-NO software line and we we're qualifying leads that were coming in. And then as we qualified those leads, we we're passing them out to the sales team. And the sales team really consisted of if you had a certain geography as an account executive, i.e. if you had California or New York, you had everything in that state. So there was no segmentation in there, but it was pretty funny. I mean, it was a pretty wild time because it was certainly at a point in dot com and cloud that companies didn't want to put their data in the cloud. So we were out there writing scripts and, you know, getting rejected left and right by companies that didn't want to put their data in the cloud. But yeah, I started initially answering the 1-800-NO software line at, at Salesforce. Wow. And then uh, obviously we now see this huge business. I think the, the revenue has just kind of overtaken SAP. So it's, it's truly like an enterprise platform now, right? At what point in that journey for you, did you start seeing Salesforce become an enterprise ready platform in terms of what the, the kind of customers that we're, we're adopting? Yeah, great question. You know, early on, there were some of the, the companies that many people in the market have been familiar with, companies like Act and Goldmine, who are known as the lower CRM companies. And then Siebel was always the big, you know, monster out there and, and one of the, the godfathers of, of CRM. Very early on, we could and really, really weren't competing with Siebel and, and some of the, the bigger companies and firms like the Oracles, uh, but we were competing against some of the smaller CRM companies and winning. And it didn't happen until a few years into Salesforce in the journey that it was really more what Salesforce has referred to over the years as seed and grow. And that was a very successful strategy where early on Salesforce started getting into divisions of Aon and Honeywell and Really what happened is that the business leaders could bring in Salesforce because you didn't need IT to set up the servers, the hardware, and the business. All you really need was access to the internet to be able to take advantage of the great CRM software by Salesforce. So it was an interesting, I think, journey and path You know, out of the gates. It was a lot of SMB and mid-market companies. But once we started to get into enterprise companies, that seed and grow started happening pretty quickly, again, across some companies like Honeywell and, and Aon, and then, you know, propelling forward, obviously. I think Salesforce really was the key reason why it ultimately ended to the demise of Siebel. Yeah, absolutely. And because we hear stories of people buying Salesforce on credit cards, and obviously that doesn't happen these days in terms of the scale and the, I guess the cost, but that sounds like it truly was happening back then. 
I think you can still actually pay for a credit card. In fact, I think with uh, Thunder, we're a Salesforce customer ourselves. I think we actually uh, are still paying by credit card. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think the opportunity, again, for a business leader to take out their credit card and transact was just making it easier from a procurement perspective, from a, that buying cycle for us to get organizations on. And, and also a key area that we relied on in the early days were the trials. We had 30-day trials with Salesforce, so anybody could sign up and go get a trial with Salesforce. And then when it became time to buy, we also early on had a model where the first 10 users were free for at least the first year. So that was also very attractive to smaller companies or smaller sales teams where you could get this great technology for free or for a very low cost. Yeah, nice. So do you think, obviously, you've gone on to, to run businesses. And do you think Salesforce attracted entrepreneurs? Or do you think a lot of people became entrepreneurs working in that environment? It's a great question. I, I haven't thought too much about the first part of that. So I'm not as in tune to some of the history of all the, you know, people that were there either before me. But I would say that Mark and the executive team, they hired pretty senior, you know, they, they brought over you know, Mark had brought over a lot of people from Oracle. Over time, there were people from Siebel that came over. So I think it was a really nice divide of, you know, some very experienced senior leaders. For me, at such a young age, everyone seemed like they had, you know, all this great experience and a lot of people really did. But I think over the years, one of the things that Mark did so well is he really brought the right people into the business across all the different, you know, roles. And it, it didn't mean that we didn't have turnover or perfect fit, but I think, you know, early on, Mark really taught the importance of building an insanely good leadership and, and hiring the best. So it felt like more people coming into Salesforce came from more corporate background, at least in, in the first couple of years that I was there. There's so so many, and I'm sure you know this more than anyone, um, but there's so many successful businesses that have been born out of Salesforce. You, know, you just think of like the App Exchange and a lot of um, you know the consulting companies that initially started off as Salesforce employees, and you're one of them, right? So you started Cloud Trigger off the back of leaving Salesforce and, and building a consulting business. What was the attraction to you of doing that? And for people that don't know that business, what was it known for? Sure. Yeah. You know, for me, it was interesting. I was on the, the up and up at Salesforce, and I had so many great mentors that took me in, under their wings for so many years. And I, being inside the four walls at Salesforce, I saw an opportunity to build a, a great consulting practice. So there was already a lot of great companies out in the market, and a number of people are familiar with a lot of those great firms like Blue Wolf and Aperio. And being inside the four walls at Salesforce, we were actually always frustrated that some of these partners couldn't go fast enough with us. So they couldn't write the SOWs fast enough or they couldn't be responsive enough. And it was only because they were also growing really fast. So for me, I had an entrepreneurial spirit. I really wanted to do something with it. And so I started thinking about you know, this gap that I saw in really how can we help organizations be more successful in adopting cloud technology? So I think that the business model of turning the lights on, allowing organizations to get all the benefits of cloud tech in that delivery model, but also how do customers engage and how do they buy and how do they adopt and how are they successful? So I was pretty sure that there was room for more partners in the ecosystem at that time. And so took the leap and that's when I, it was a really hard decision by the way, but I took the leap and uh, left Salesforce after about 10 years and started my first company called CloudTrigger. And at that point, were you servicing a particular like size of organization or I guess that was probably before like specializing in an area of Salesforce, you kind of, I would imagine you did Salesforce, which wasn't as huge as it is today. 
we right out of the gate started working with actually some very large media companies. So when I, my last role at Salesforce, I was in the media and telco vertical on the enterprise team. And so some of my clients that I was working with was Google and Disney. When I left Salesforce, I was able to continue to have some of those relationships still. And therefore I brought over Disney and Google and some other large media companies pretty much out of the gate. So Fairly quickly, we became known as a go-to partner for Salesforce and around media and telco, but we also did a lot across the different clouds. We did a lot of work with technology and other industries. So it was kind of interesting for us. We, over time, we had both, I would say, a focus on both enterprise and commercial and multi-industry. Was it difficult to make that transition from selling licenses to, to then selling services? Like did that, because some people think that's a transition that people can't make and it's different, right? But was it in your experience? You know, for me, being in the sales organization for 10 years, part of the the areas that I believe I had a lot of success at Salesforce in that sales role was being really focused again, not only all the reasons why we were going to win a deal, but all the reasons why we might not win a deal. And you tend to look and think about engagements a little bit differently. And a core component of that, again, is the implementation and creating that roadmap for success with Salesforce. And so for me, over the years, I had worked very closely with our partners like Blue Wolf and Imperio and also worked very closely with our internal professional services team at Salesforce. And I was quarterbacking those different strategies on the implementation side. I almost never let one of our internal professional services consultants at Salesforce or one of the partners go into any perspective meeting and or a client meeting without me there to help work on that strategy. So in some ways, I felt comfortable in that transition that I had been in a similar kind of motion for many years before going over. I would say the, the biggest thing to me in the biggest transition was being a, a, a leader for the first time, right? Starting a company. And, you know, there was a lot of other things that seemed really, you know, big and scary at the time, like finance and operations and, and things on that side of the house that I didn't have much prior experience at Salesforce with. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and obviously now looking back, the, like that that journey must have been pretty crazy, but it ended with a, an acquisition. So what do you think made you an acquisition target way back then? And how did that, your, your first journey experience of an acquisition feel? Yeah, you know, for us, we started growing really fast when we, when we launched the company and we went from about zero to 120 employees in about two to three years. Salesforce Ventures invested in our first company, CloudTrigger, And pretty much at the time that we took the investment, maybe not surprising now looking back, but it was almost like some sort of a a textbook play where a number of the GSIs came and were very interested in acquiring CloudTrigger. So we had conversations with PwC and Accenture and a number of different firms. We got really excited when we met the team at CloudChirpas about that vision and that path that they were on. But ultimately for us, you know, there was a lot of things that we did extremely well at that time. And today I would say that in some ways the market is just as competitive, but I think the gap between good to great SIs and partners in the space is fairly substantial. And and now because of all the acquisitions and, and things that have happened in this space, as I know you follow this and it's part of your business and, and part of the motion that you're helping that the market move forward from a talent perspective, you know, it's, I would say in a lot of ways, I've never seen a bigger opportunity than I do see today with the market 
in around Salesforce. So it's it's really exciting for us, especially with the new company and, and pointing back in. We're excited about where we are today and where we're going. Form building can be a tedious and complex process when collecting loads of data for enterprises. Solve this issue with ease through Form Assembly, an all-in-one secure web form builder with a robust Salesforce integration. This seamless web-to-lead form building connection boasts features including sophisticated data collection, the option to pre-fill forms, create and update records, and more. Their advanced compliance standards offer prime solutions for companies in the government, FinServe, healthcare, nonprofit, and higher education spaces. Visit www.formassembly.com forward slash talent hub to find out why FormAssembly is the number one enterprise form building platform for Salesforce and how it can be customized to fit the needs of your company. Yeah, and obviously we'll get to the the, the fact that you're now back in and, and running another business because um, I think like a lot of people think one acquisition is enough and um, you know, you, you've achieved everything and, and going through that experience, like when you have had a business acquired and then you you then become part of a new organization, like what's that like mentally? Because your role must change, your responsibilities change. Like, is that a difficult transition to make? I think it really depends on the acquiring company, the culture and your role, right? So for me, through the acquisition into Cloud Sherpas, my role initially was to run the Western US Salesforce practice, which was a large role. So I had basically everything from a P&L perspective, and that was exciting. But I also saw some new opportunities. And so I built a new commercial team within our Salesforce practice that hadn't existed. I helped continue to build out our service cloud practice. But importantly, we had such an incredible vision, incredible culture. We had an incredible leadership team, great investors, and really just like the team across the board was so good. And we had a very clear vision of where we're going. And quarter over quarter, year over year, we really executed on that. So all those elements really came together for us. And I think we did a really good job in inquiring companies and really taking the DNA from these different companies that we acquired to build the bigger Cloud Sherpas organization. And we were thoughtful. So we really looked at different companies and their tools and their methodologies and their process and their people. And we're thoughtful, again, how we put them into one combined organization. And I think, unfortunately, too often we see acquisitions in the market, both on the product side and the services side, where a lot of these acquisitions are not successful because sometimes they're met with a brick wall. There's not a great execution play to bring these companies together into one umbrella and to be able to execute moving forward. So I learned a lot. I learned a ton through that acquisition that I still am excited about today to be able to carry forward and and hopefully improve on that. Isn't it crazy the amount of people that tend to leave a company after they've been acquired? As a recruiter, it's quite often, um, you know, where, where you go to for, you know, you're looking for candidates. It's quite an obvious place to to hunt when a company's just been acquired because there often is a lot of fallout. Is that in your experience just because of the the culture clash or, or like you said, things not just aligning quite quite nicely? Yeah, I think it depends, right, on the acquiring company speaking freely. Small firms aren't for everybody. Big firms aren't for everybody, right? And I think some people tend to gravitate towards, you know, the smaller companies and and the culture and their ability to make an impact in smaller companies. And that can happen also in in big companies too. But I think for a lot of people going from a, a smaller company to a bigger company, 
there's differences, right? There's nuances, there's changes to their day-to-day, there's changes in their comp plans, there's change in so many different variables that I think it makes it hard. But I will say that I agree with you. It's it's very eye-opening to me and it's very disruptive in a bad way for the market when these acquisitions happen and it destroys a lot of that DNA because there's a lot that's built around, you know, when we had Cloud Trigger and Cloud Sherpas and and Aperio and Blue Wolf. And there's a lot of special things that happen in these smaller companies and our ability to be more nimble, to be more flexible sometimes. And ultimately, those relationships that are developed over the years at Salesforce and and why Salesforce might like to work with the, the regional system as integrators and the the GSIs. And a lot of times when these acquisitions happen, sometimes the focus and the change morphs into the acquiring company. And so sometimes those relationships that were built, sometimes the people who were owning those relationships don't own those relationships anymore. Sometimes those current customers that you have, you can no longer work with because of a difference of methodology, pricing, there's so many variables. So I actually think in a lot of ways, I've seen so many of these acquisitions that you have too in the day-to-day that unfortunately they don't turn out well for a high percentage of not only the employees, but I would say for the market where these customers sometimes are forced or you know they obviously have sometimes at most all the time they can maybe contractually or otherwise get out of their agreements to go work with another company. But I just, I think at the core, I see sometimes more disruption when these initially happen or two years down the line or three years down the line. Ultimately, I've seen a lot of these acquisitions be extremely successful too, but it's hard. And again, I I think it's disruptive. You could argue disruptive in a good way. You can argue disruptive in a bad way for the market. Definitely. And then after Accenture acquired um, Sherpas, what kept you busy after that? Because you you um, you had some other ventures outside and some other opportunities that you explored. Yeah, I you know it was interesting after the acquisition to Accenture. It was just an amazing ride. You know, being inside the four walls at Salesforce for ten years. You know, now one of the largest software companies in the world to building some of these more nimble companies like. Cloud Trigger and Cloud Chirpas and now Thunder, and then you know ultimately ending up in one of the largest services companies in the world. I'd really seen a lot. I had learned so much, and I was actually excited to start this new venture that was totally outside of the Salesforce ecosystem because I had convinced myself along that journey that there must be life outside of Salesforce. <laughs> so I actually went out, I built an innovation network, actually built it on Heroku. We were in the Salesforce incubator. So just as fast as I thought we were getting away, we came right back in and we were doing some special projects for Salesforce. It was a great venture. We worked with a lot of big firms. We worked with a lot of universities. Unfortunately, that venture ended up not leading to the success that we were hoping to have. And it was painful. It was really painful. I actually had to shut down the company, which was so hard. We had a lot of great employees. We had, again, some customers. I had investors. And it was it was really, really hard. It was one of the first times in my life that I'd really faced, at some levels, you know, failure. But a, in another path, you know, I was excited to take one of my dreams and a passion forward to the market. I just don't know that, you know, there was the right product market fit for the product that we were building at the time, but we had some success, but just not enough success in that venture. And when we've discussed uh, previously, we've spoken about product market fit and and you then went to work at WeWork, which I think you described as a great product market fit. Yep. 
So what what have you learned going back then into a bigger organization? And, and obviously, as you've seen Salesforce grow, if the product market fit is right, what else is kind of fundamental to success? Like, do you see that there's other other key factors behind the success of a business that is more so than just the product? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, depending, and I, I have this conversation with quite a few people because, you know, I have a lot of friends that are entrepreneurs and maybe business owners at different levels. So to me, I think success could be, you might have a great little business with two or three employees, you know? So I think if we're talking about in the realm of a, of a Salesforce or a WeWork or, you know, a company that can get very large and it's, it's got to be founded around a big market, right? A big total addressable market. As you mentioned, the key element of that is having a killer product. You have to have happy customers. You've got to have differentiation in the market, right? So I think clearly Salesforce and, and WeWork have, have had both of those. And it actually feels funny to me in some ways to be talking about WeWork in this conversation because they've had a little bit of different you know, endings, clearly. They're different companies. It was really uh, eye-opening today to see that WeWork is, is filing to go public. So anyway, but yeah, I think those are you know top level. Those are some of the elements of, I think, of what's important for creating a, a bigger opportunity for bigger companies. Right. Because then you've you've now obviously with Thunder is is born. Um, you're you're now running another business. So what excited you about doing that? And obviously you've got all of these lessons from these experiences in the past. So what's kind of given you the drive to come back and do it all again with everything you've learned? I think it's probably a component of that last part that you mentioned is is what I've learned. I think we have an opportunity to build an amazing company, an amazing culture. The market wants it. The market needs it. There's still a gap. There's a room for, you know, 20 plus additional great thunders in the market. I think I might've mentioned it earlier in the conversation that I, I just see that gap between, you know, okay to great Salesforce consulting companies. That gap is pretty big. And I think there's a lot of talent out there that's kind of stuck in, in places right now and, and wanting and waiting to see that next you know, Salesforce SI, and I, I just, I think there's some great ones still out there, you know, today in the market that have gotten some more of that size and scale that have that culture, that have the leadership, that have all of those attributes that I think people are looking for. I also think people are a little bit nervous, you know, because they've been in this playbook before and they, you know, maybe they were at Cloud Chirpas or Aperio or Blue Wolf, and they've gone through some of these acquisitions. And sometimes the companies haven't always ended up being what they want to be. And, some of those people have stayed in the GSI because maybe they're scared to see a path, you know, again, go to a place that they're not really sure that they're going to have something as good as a Blue Wolf or a Pira or a Cloud Sherpa. So, and I'm only using those three companies as reference. There's so many other amazing, wonderful Salesforce SIs out there in the market too. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned those three because um, obviously they're the, the, I would imagine they're the ones that you were dealing with right back at the beginning, the, the Blue Wolves and the Pira's. And obviously, Today, they've still had that impact on you to be mentioned and, and you know, not even necessarily around anymore, right? They're, they've been acquired themselves. Yeah. So I think Aperio, if I'm thinking through the trajectory, Aperio was acquired by Repro, then Cloud Sherpas was acquired by Accenture and Blue Wolf by IBM. And there was a ton of acquisitions, you know, prior to those three happening in the space. But yeah, those all three of those companies went through acquisitions to fairly larger companies. When, when you're setting up a business and you, you know more, more than most about the acquisitions in this ecosystem, like I think many people watching this or listening to this will, will set up a consulting business to be acquired. 
or have the vision of that's what we want to achieve. But do you think the journey that you've been on and starting a new business now, it's more important just to, to build an environment that people want to work in and then see what comes in the future, like just to, to create an environment that, that is going to attract those kind of people that you want to attract more so than having an end goal like that? I think everyone comes into it a little bit differently. So it'd be hard to speak at, at the greater masses of, uh, I, you know, every time that I take a call from somebody who's either looking to start a Salesforce uh, consulting practice or another, you know, company, I do believe that, again, going back to my comments earlier, there are some people who build great companies that might not get that big. And I have a ton of respect. You know, I think it's, there's a lot of important things that come to alignment around the founders, whether you have investors or you don't have investors and the, and the type of people and the culture that you're building, right? So I think it's, it's honestly different. You know, there are great companies out there that might not ever, you know, go through an acquisition and maybe that's not their, their future vision. It might be not factual, but I hear things like that about slalom, right? My understanding from what I hear factual or not is that Slalom is really a family-owned business. There is no desire for them to be acquired. You know, maybe they go public one day, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think there's really a right or wrong, you know, path forward. I think hopefully, I do think there's a responsibility for these companies to build excellence in the market because unfortunately, I think too many customers have been in a, a situation where they've had negative relationships, projects with with SIs, and that's that's also really disruptive and and hard for the customers and and hard for the the partner back at Salesforce. 100%. Now, obviously, there's been a fair amount of uh, time between the two businesses. So how does it differ running a consulting business now to when you, you started CloudTrigger? I love that. That my honest answer is not a lot has changed. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I, uh, I feel smarter in some ways of, as far as running the company and, and building the companies with just such an incredible team that we have here today. But I'll be honest, the playbook, whether, you know, depending on who you talk to, I would say the go-to-market motion is is very, very similar than it, when it was when we started CloudTrigger. I do believe that was part of our differentiation back in 2009. A lot of that go-to-market is the same. I think there there are, you know, some nuances that make it harder in the consulting business around more competition, more pressure on the margins, more pressure on the pricing. So I think, you know, back in 2009, it was a little bit easier for us to get higher margins in the business. But now with more of the offshore capabilities that have been brought to the market that didn't exist as much, it was there, but it's, it's much more competitive. And so I think that competitive pressure makes it more challenging in how you build a successful SI at scale. And again, there's a lot of dependencies around, you know, what you want that scale to be. What about talent, uh, talent attraction? Is it the same as it was? There were fewer people in the market back then, but there was less competition uh, in terms of other companies hiring. So like, do you find it's harder to attract talent now and the right talent? Uh, I'm imagining it's more expensive. It is. It, 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 it's, it's more expensive. And one of the things that I didn't recognize, and this is an eyes wide open that everyone should tune into, is that back in 2009, when we were hiring consultants, let's just use some easy math. Let's say that we we're paying these consultants, you know, 80,000, 100,000. So these were our, our Salesforce BAs out in the market. We were billing those Salesforce BAs out in the market at $185 an hour probably in early 2010, getting 225 an hour for those consultants. Today, those same people, if you, I'm sure, have hired or placed some of them, if you looked at their trajectory back into 2009 or in that realm, those same people 
back in you know 2009, fast forward today, are easily making double salary, but we're still billing them out at the same rate. That's a problem. That's a challenge, right? And you get more of that competitive kind of threat to the market. So it's harder, I think, in that way that depending on the type of consulting company that you're building, you have to find ways to optimize the talent, right? So optimizing the talent could mean that you're building offshore teams. It could mean that you have the right infrastructure to bring on more junior resources. And I think that's really hard for a lot of companies. And to be fair to the people that you're intaking in the business, do you have the right infrastructure to make them successful? Because you could be placing you know, a perfectly qualified individual into a company that they just don't have the right training, they don't have the right programs, and it's really hard for that individual to be successful. So I think there's a lot of, again, you know, variables that go into that matching of the company, the culture, are you placing them into a startup with not a lot of process or into a much bigger company that does have a lot more training and programs and, and ways for employees to be successful out of the gates? Yeah, I, I agree. I um, I find that some people are, are really cost sensitive when they're looking to hire and they make the wrong hiring decisions because they're trying to get someone under a certain budget, but then they're not considering the actual environment they're bringing them into. And I, the, my, my biggest uh, gripe is setting people up to foul. And, you know, I've heard of consulting partners hiring like, super, super junior people and putting them on a project on their own from kind of day one with no support. And I think that's just not good for anyone, right? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, it, I, I call it sink or swim. It's, you know, sometimes you bring people in and you basically put them on a project and <laughs> on a direction. And then unfortunately, sometimes it's that person is seen as, hey, they weren't successful, but they might not understand your company's process. They might not understand your company's methodology. And, you know, that's a challenge for a fast growing or a small company like Thunder you know, where you're sometimes building that as you go, right? You're building the plane as it flies, is yeah. the analogy, right? But ultimately, I think that it's hard, right? And so I think companies, again, they you could either hire very senior, which, you know, comes with a pressure on your margins, or you can go really junior. We actually made the decision at Thunder to hire really senior. So we really have been blessed to have a, an incredible group of people at a very, I would say, at a very senior level that have come in and are building the infrastructure so we can, you know, scale and kind of round out the talent at the end of the day. Yeah, nice. I think if you do, if you go that way, then it's easier to hire the juniors later, right? Because you've got the foundations, you've got the support, it, it kind of makes everything easier. But the initial outlay is, is obviously a lot more. So uh, that's why some people don't go down that route. But, you know, I've never run a consulting business. But to me, that makes sense to go that that path. So you've had a lot of success in the past and you, you learned a lot about running consulting businesses and then you start Thunder and there's a pandemic and, and uh, you know, we're in COVID. And so what have you had to do personally to adapt as a leader through this period? So we started Thunder just about a year ago. So C19 had already hit the market. It was probably for us, selfishly, it was the best time to start a, a company. What it did is it totally leveled the playing field. In the consulting business, a lot of times it's very competitive from a geographical perspective. But since COVID pulled that ability for so many people to get together and meet in person, go into offices, do whiteboarding, it totally changed the landscape for us in the most positive way. One, we didn't have to get on planes. Two, just from a pure cost perspective, you know, we didn't have to be competitive with an office and you know some of the other things that traditionally do attract talent. But I think, you know, for us, it's, 
we're really excited about the opportunity right now. Things I think are, are starting to come back. I, I, you know, I hope like everybody that they do. What we're seeing more of the market today is I'm actually flying to New York tomorrow to meet with some some prospects and some customers, but not in the office. So it's still happening, I would say, outside of the office. So I'm hopeful it'll come back. I personally am getting a little bit tired <laughs> of sitting behind the Zooms and the Google Meets all day. So in the last couple of weeks, I've been traveling a little bit more and it, it's been good to get out there. Yeah, fingers crossed. It's on the up. We're, we're still in lockdown here in Australia, but we've, I think it's 20 days or so, and, and then we get our freedom day. So fingers crossed. So final question, whether you're giving this advice to your younger self before you started the first consulting business or to someone that picks up the phone to you tomorrow and asks your, your kind of top tip around running a, a successful consulting business or, or number one piece of advice to someone starting out now, what would that be? I would say it's a whole combination of one, you've got to have the gut, you've got to have the grit, you've got to have the energy, but I think a lot of it comes with having a, a plan, right? So there's so many critical elements to building a successful company. I think you've got to create the right culture. I'm not a highly religious person, but I do think you have to create a religion. You got to make the machine fire every day. You have to bring the energy. You have to have customer obsession, which is so important in this business. You have to create clear goals for the company so everybody knows what needs to be done and why and to what standard. You have to be able to take ownership. You have to be able to deliver results and the ability to consistently exceed for your team, for your, for your company. So early on, you have to be willing to do everything too, right? Because until you have a team, I think it's important that you internalize that you're probably the person doing most unless you are able to go out and raise a bunch of, you know, venture capital. But um, I think you also have to have that playbook where you insist on high standards because the market is competitive. You know, our brand is everything in the market and our customers, you know, they insist on us having high standards. So I think it's just, you know, the motivation, the ability to bring the energy and to somehow along the way have a lot of empathy and you know, respect around the team because it's hard, right? It's really, really hard. It is really hard to scale, but I was able to, to do it. We're doing it again. And I definitely always uh, encourage a lot of people. I, I end up taking quite a few calls from different people who reach out and they say, hey, I, I would love to get some advice. And so I think I highlighted some of them, but I, I think as much as you know, one looks at all the, the pros, I think people also have to be prepared that if it doesn't work out, where does that put you, right? In your personal kind of place as you move forward, which I'm a huge believer that you should try things. And if they don't work out, it's okay. Because a lot of us know where we can hopefully go back to, whether it was, hey, you were doing recruiting for a bigger firm or Ben, I think in our first conversation, I snapped back and said, well, I want to hire you to run talent at Thunder. So, you know, I think for any of us who have developed a strong craft, I do think that's an important element of it, right? If you're really strong at one, you know, component and understanding what your superpower is, play to that and build your team around that, you know, again, depending on, you know, how big you want to be. But there's also a lot of great, you know, individuals out there now that are, doing really well from an individual consulting level, right? That they're, they are their own company. They are their own business. They are their own, you know, team, if you will. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for, like I said, so many more great services companies to be built in this space. Yeah, awesome. And I, I'm really excited to see from afar Thunder because I, I've seen some of the people you've got and like the way that people talk passionately about the brand on LinkedIn, you know, employees, and it just does seem like a great place to work. So yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see how things go. I'm sure in a year's time, yeah, the business will be huge. 
Yeah, well, we're just excited to grow. Hopefully smart. We've got a lot of opportunity in the market and I hope you and I can stay in touch. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talent Hub Talk. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could subscribe and also leave a short review. Um, We're keen for this podcast to reach as many people in the Salesforce ecosystem as possible and your reviews will help us do that.